I still don't see where, as a people, we understand the value of having political power and using that power to actually take care of your community in a way that's the equity that you're trying to get to equality, right? And we talk about equality and equity as an input to get to equality as the outcome. And that's where it gets hard because then equity starts feeling like you're taking something from people who've always had everything. Systems are made up of people and people have biases. No matter how good their intentions, they aren't always fully informed. This is true in philanthropy and politics. And as we all know, there is a great deal of power in philanthropy and politics. So the degree to which they are informed by equity or practice equity has real implications for all of us. Coming up, you'll hear from Tamika Hart Wigington, who has worked to improve education outcomes and social and economic mobility at the local and national level. Tamika founded the Harwick Group in 2023. She'll be focusing on building strategic partnerships to support the public sector in better serving its citizens. We're about to have an honest conversation about what it takes to advance equity in philanthropy and politics. I'm Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams, and this is Equitable. Hey, Tamika, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am too. I am too. The way I want to start is to have you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners. And I want you to introduce yourself without talking about your professional life. All right. Thank you. Hi. So I'm excited to be here today with you, Adrian. As I said, I'm Tamika Hart Wickington. I am a native Memphian. I am a child of Earhart and Willie Seahart, rest his soul. I was born and raised in poverty in Memphis, actually, and um, lived in two key historic uh, communities in Memphis. One, one historic was North Memphis, and then we moved to Frazier community in Memphis. And it was working white when we moved there and became uh, working and poor black uh, sh- a few short years later. It's indicative of what was happening in Memphis at the time, white flight. And so um, as a native uh, Memphian, you know, first generation college student, my upbringing in my community has really shaped everything that we're going to talk about today. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so born in Christianity, loving family, you know, youngest of five, spoiled by some, like my <laughs> siblings would say, but, but determined and ambition despite mm-hmm. of my upbringing and what my family had to go through. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So now let's hear about your professional life. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Oh, my goodness. What an arc. Um, I have done quite a few things um, in uh, over the span of a 30 year professional career. And so I started out of college. As I said, I'm a first generation college student and I wanted to do a lot of things. I remember wanting to be a lawyer, wanting to be a teacher, wanting to be a corporate leader, whatever that meant. And I kind of got a chance to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. I um, came out of college as an education major, started in retail management, though, solely because I graduated in December. And my family couldn't afford me not having a job until school started in August. And so I had to think of another path. And because I was a business and education major, retail 
was the options for me. But it didn't take me long to realize, actually, education is the thing that I want to do. So within 11 months of graduating, I became a teacher. I taught school for five years, always this urging to do something else. And law school never went away. So I uh, went to law school. And while in law school, thirsting, like figuring out what am I really trying to do? By my third year law school age, I realized, well, I'm not going to be a lawyer forever. Like I'm going <laughs> to practice. But I knew that that wasn't what I was trying to. It wasn't my mission in life. And it was around my second year as a lawyer when I realized education actually is the problem of the world where I seek to work that I would love to solve, but not as a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. And that led me to running for school board. And so that began my political trajectory, uh, served on the school board, left my law practice, got into community work. And so I was, you know, leading and running nonprofits at the local level, at the national level, and then landed in philanthropy. Um, again, based in this conversation out of a desire to see Black-led organizations get what they deserve and earn and realize we can't if we don't have people with a different mindset working in philanthropy. And mm -hmm. so I've worked in uh, multiple philanthropies and now I'm a consultant um, trying to help public sector philanthropy and nonprofits really understand this very work that we're talking about today. Well, then let's get into it on this philanthropy topic, because, you know, that's partially my background, too. And I have lots to discuss. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about Absolutely. philanthropy and equity. And I really want to focus on racial equity. I know we can talk about equity in a number mm -hmm. of different ways, but I am very curious to know, what do you think is the greatest challenge of facing philanthropy as it relates to racial equity? Oh, that's deep, Adrian. Like that's a deep, <laughs> some really deep question. The biggest challenge, I think, is bias and mindset of people who work in philanthropy, right? And 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 we're assuming all good intentions, right? Even though that's probably generous uh, for some, right? But assuming mm -hmm. all good intentions, someone uh, brilliantly said to me once um, recently, like intentions aside, you got to focus on impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can't always say my intentions were great. You got to focus on the impact of of your work, and so. Really, what led me to philanthropy is I had run the Memphis Urban League, right? I left the Memphis Urban League and I went to work for Teach for America. So I affectionately say I went from black space to white space, right, mm -hmm. in my work. And many of us who worked in community always said, you know, it just seemed like white people have it easy to raise money, you know, and, and that was a belief. And then I went to work for Teach for America and it was realized, I saw it, it was mm -hmm. in real time how easier, I would say, compared to Black-led organization, it was for white-led organizations to just have trust and, you know, respect and money, right, to do the things that they need to do. So I started saying, oh, we need more of us in philanthropy. And about four years later, I landed in philanthropy because I, again, I wanted to be in the room. I realized if we're not in the room, if we don't have the perspective of community, and we can bring that along with us, even when community can't be fully in the room with us that we're there to represent. So part of it was the realization that people just honestly believe that capacity for white organizations just meant that, right? People mm -hmm. and things. But capacity for organizations led by people of color and especially black people was about competence. So if you're thinking a lack of capacity by small black led organizations because they lack competence, you're not as willing to take the risk of giving the kind of funding, right, that mm -hmm. they need 
because first they got to get to the competence and not just, oh, we need the capacity to hire researchers and, you know, public policy uh, people. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's the biggest challenge is the mind, mindset, experience and lack of exposure to communities of color, to black people, people who work in philanthropy is one of the biggest mm-hmm. hurdles. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to this idea of intentions. Yes. So in my experience, my perspective, intentions are also reflected in policy. They're reflected in the uh, practices of an organization. And with that in mind, I want to know if you want to revisit the idea of good intentions in philanthropy. Do you think that the policies and practices really reflect good intentions? And if so, kind of what is the distinction then between uh, intention? Adrian, again, when I went to philanthropy, before getting into philanthropy, I was just, I don't even know what I meant by philanthropy, right? And then I get there and I realize, oh, it's just a building full of people who are making these decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I say the intentions are good, there are people that I met who they, they were they thought they were doing the right thing, right? By mm-hmm. saying, right, the, you know, focusing so much on written word, right? Focusing so much on research and evidence-based versus lived experience, right? Like mm-hmm. their intentions were, this is how we get good work. Mm-hmm. They needed to understand that, you know, there's value in other ways and approaches to the work. But when you have lacked any level of actual, you know, being exposed to people who think, and have different experiences than you, then it is about the impact. So, but at the systems level of philanthropy, I absolutely believe that until we tackle those systems level, those policies, right? Like we, we all are, so philanthropy is about the 5%, right? And, yeah. and one question is what happened to the 95%, right? Yes. That's sending and where the actual wealth is being built, right? So if we were serious intention matching our impact, right? We'd say, why is it just limited to 5%, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some philanthropists who have good intentions and they give a little more than their 5%, Mm -hmm. but I don't know anybody that's given 50%, you know, Mm -hmm. of of their, and so that, so when I say that, I mean, it's a room full of people who mean well, but until they sit with someone who can even challenge that, yeah, you mean well, but here's what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And and then I found the real ones who could understand the systemic and structural, like, you know, well, what you're trying to do doesn't speak to these equitable concepts that you keep raising. And mm-hmm. so that's what I that's what I mean by that. But absolutely, we need to look at the systems that will and policies that are, are wrought with um, they, you know, it's the same. I, t- I say for, for philanthropy to truly do what it says it's trying to do, it means acknowledging that the same system that keeps them in generational wealth is what's keeping people in generational yes. poverty. And that's a mm-hmm. tough, like, then you have to, you're asking people to acknowledge that there are actual systemic and structural reasons mm-hmm. why people are facing these disparities that they face. It's not because they didn't work hard. It's not because they're not as smart as you, right? That you have to go all the way back to the founding of this country and realize that we are still living in that legacy of the founding mm-hmm. of this country of, of slavery. Uh, so let me be clear what I mean of, of slavery mm-hmm. um, as our system, right? Uh, our economic system. We're still living in that. And people who benefited then are still benefiting today. And people who were hurt then are still hurt today. Yes. Uh, this point about the benefits of folks who have this generational wealth to give away uh, and even the 
the foundations where the families aren't even involved anymore. Yeah. It's still the same impact of the history. What I've been curious about and what I say a lot, <laughs> I say this all the time. You've probably heard me say it many times, <laughs> is that when families and donors are the people making the money, when they're still making the money and they're still in the economic system, they are even less inclined to do truly impactful work, um, invest in things like advocacy and mm -hmm. um, large changes in systems, because that would actually diminish their capacity to secure the kind of wealth they've usually been securing. Yes. Um, so when you think about that, what are the, what do you think are the kind of conversations we could be having with philanthropists, meaning okay. the people who really make the money and have the money um, to help them see the impact they could be having and to help them interrogate their motivations. Yeah. And so it's just, I mean, it's really, you know, the answer was in the, it was in the question, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So I, it, I was really, my, my entry into philanthropy uh, was at the world's largest philanthropy, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I worked for four years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I also had the distinct honor of being able, my, my portfolio was called the Civil Rights and Equity Portfolio. Mm -hmm. So I went into philanthropy in a way to do exactly what I went to philanthropy to do, right? It's exactly. Mm -hmm. where I, I, I laugh and joke that in my interviews, I said, I just want to make it clear. Me coming here would mean I am trying to get as much of your money as possible to black and brown organization. Mm -hmm. And and finally the hiring manager said, well, that's the job, right? That That's mm -hmm. what your job is. And also I say that because you mentioned advocacy, funding advocacy. Gates was one of few organizations that was actually funding advocacy. And that was, mm -hmm. I funded civil rights and equity organizations that were working on education advocacy. Mm -hmm. Now that's noble and that's great, right? right? Because I was able to help, you know, and I came in on a legacy of leaders before me but I was able to help even Shepard just a little differently of what that could look like. And it's honoring what these organizations are already doing, what they've been mm -hmm. doing, some of them for 100 years, over 100 years, and recognizing their unique position to understand the communities because they're, they're, they're on the ground. Like they, they're national organizations, but they had to feel this on the ground. Yeah. The challenge was still, it was advocacy around what we have decided um, needs to happen. Come back to good in intentions, right? So advocacy mm -hmm. around what it means to have great teachers in classrooms, that's needed. You can't mm -hmm. improve public education without having great teachers in classrooms. Advocacy around funding for higher ed, those kinds of things, right? So it's not like we weren't advocating for the right things. What we would never have advocated for uh, in general, and I'm not just speaking specifically about Gates, I don't hear enough philanthropy advocating for a different tax system that says mm -hmm. investment income is still income. It should be taxed, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as labor income, right? That, mm -hmm. um, you know, capital from investments and what other we define as brilliance, that's different brilliant than labor, right? Yeah. Taxed differently, right? So, so we're not doing that. But part of it is because we do have to have the conversations of how do you help people who've always benefited from a system to not see that it wasn't that you just worked hard, right? And I don't, and, and that's not to take away from, yes, there are, some, there, are, there are a lot of people who could benefit from the system or not because they're not working hard. So there are people mm -hmm. who are working hard and they benefit from the system, but they're, but acknowledging that the system was so set up for you to benefit that you can't look at, go into some communities and wonder why their community looked like it looks without talking yeah. about redlining, wondering why 
you know, when you realize that in this country, we've allowed government and banks and everything to just disinvest and ignore communities, right? Where we have mm-hmm. ordinance that say well, one thing can happen on this side of the city, but not that side of the city. Like until we're advocating for it at the systems level and that yeah. systems level work that's different than saying, I'm going to make sure we have great teachers. That's great and noble and we need to do that. But that's different than saying, I'm going to make sure public education equitably funds communities and students and schools based on exactly what those students and communities need versus mm-hmm. some level of here's the per pupil and every kid in every school gets the same per pupil amount. That's not equity. That's mm-hmm. that's that is different than equity. Mm-hmm. So I want to take a little shift then from this uh, discussion about advocacy into politics. Let's talk politics. So um, say a little bit more about your experience, uh, your in politics, um, and then move into politics and equity. I haven't finished, but I'm loving your book. And I'm sure you didn't expect me to come on and plug the book, but you make a point in the book about diversity and you can have diversity, but that still doesn't mean you have an equity or inclusion. And so I'm going to put a pincushion there and come back to it with politics. Mm -hmm. And again, so I ran for politics, not from, again, I'm a, I don't have anybody in my family that had been in politics. I fully didn't even understand the power of politics until I ran and won. And, and now I'm situated. But I'm watching my community, school system, you know, where I, you know, come. By the time I ran, we had just fairly new to No Child Left Behind. So now we mm-hmm. have data and disaggregated data and we can see clearly what public education is doing. And, and despite what some think, it didn't just happen. Those yeah. that data didn't just come to life because George Bush, you know, brought in No Child mm-hmm. Left Behind. No Child Left Behind just flashed a light on you know, what was already happening and yeah. had been happening for decades and since the founding of, of public education, because public education has always been about poor people. At yes. one point, it was just about poor white people. And then yes. when it became about poor black people, then it just became about people of color mostly, right? Mm-hmm. And still poor. So so I'm watching and I'm trying to understand. And what I saw in Memphis is there's a lot of black political power. So I thought, right, there was a bunch of people at that point. The mayor was black. Right. When I ran the, the city and county mayor were black. The Congress, you know, the, the member of Congress was was black. And so I'm actually I'm, I'm thinking, like, wow, OK, we have a lot of, you know, political power. Mm-hmm. But why hasn't that translated to other kinds of power? I wasn't seeing other kinds of power, capital, economic, any. And so. But I ran just because I thought I'm a former teacher. I'm now a lawyer. I think I could be a good school board member. It's when I won and I'm on. And now, again, I'm joining a body in this community where it's majority black people. And you're still talking about such racial inequity, (laughs) wrought racial inequity, racial discrimination, like outright, you know, from how we contract and, and do business, lack of any focus around like coordinated focus around wealth creation, black mm-hmm. wealth creation, and lack of understanding that mm-hmm. white wealth also came from government. People act like it came from something else. Everything that every piece of wealth we have, first again, a government that allowed you know hundreds of years of free labor. Yeah. Then a government that allowed you know the deconstruction of reconstruction. Right. Mm-hmm. Then a government that allowed Jim Crow. A government that created GI bills and every other thing that created the yes. white middle class that denying it for people of color. So when I got in and I start talking about our ability to create wealth, people 
oh, that's not, you know, that's not what politics does. And I was like, that's exact. like, first of all, government only gets its wealth from the people. So yes. government should be returning that wealth uh, equitably to the people. Mm-hmm. And so um, my experience, it was, um, it was one of the most, you know, I served nine years on the school board. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done, even as hard as it was, even as, you know, feel like didn't get anywhere near the things done that I dreamed that we could do. Um, but I learned a lot about systems. And I had an eye opening to how difficult it is to be an individual yes. and think you can change the system. And but the rewarding work of trying to mobilize others to change the system and that that mobilization still takes forever. And mm-hmm. it takes it, you can't because you mobilize and got one thing done doesn't mean you're done. Right. You got to keep mobilizing. But I still I do, in this community, specifically in Memphis, I still don't see where. As a people, we understand the value of having political power and using that power to actually take care of your community in a way that's the equity that you're trying to get to equality, right? And we yeah. talk about equality and, and you know, and equity as an input to get to equality as the outcome. And that's where it gets hard because then equity starts feeling like you're taking something from people mm-hmm. who've always had everything. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good thing to bring up, particularly when it relates to politics and the kind of fights we get into. I often say that we find it hard to have conversations about the fact that there is a sense of loss in conversations around equity. I remember in a sense of, you know, attack and kind of guilting all of those things. And sometimes we like to deny them or push them aside and say, let's not worry about that. That's not really what's going on. But it's really what's going on. Yes. Just as you said in philanthropy that there are individual people moving this system forward, there are individual people who are going to be impacted by shifts towards equity. And have you had conversations with uh, folks who struggle with that, right? Who I know in politics, you're really talking to people across the political spectrum, have you had those conversations and what have they been like? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I, mean, I can do that with a quick story, an example yeah. of that. And so, mm-hmm. as you know, in Memphis, we have our beloved optional school program, right? Yes. And uh, for your listeners, our optional schools are really just schools that are academically challenging. And the fact that we call them optional should be as you know, telling. And they came about, uh, as I understand the history, in response to white flight. So they were mm-hmm. designed to keep at the, you know, at the, not, not at the time of Brown versus Board of Education, but at the 15, 16 years later when it was actually, okay, you must implement this new right and you actually must integrate your schools and busing was the most creative way we could come up with. Well, you know, white flight and white people in Memphis decided I will go to an independent school and create a lot of them other than go to school with, with these black uh, students who now have the right to go to whatever school. So in response to that, the Memphis City Schools then created these optional schools. And it was like, oh, if we create these pockets of good schools, mm-hmm. we could keep white people in. How you know that was the case? Because you can point to where the optional schools are, right? Mm-hmm. And so for every community where there's an optional school, it's mostly, at least then, it was white middle class communities. And so even in that the decision was that they deserve good schools, yeah. but we're not going to think about what needs to happen in the North and the South and other pieces of the community. 
So fast forward, and I was a consumer and a victim of the op- optional school program as a student, right? I went mm-hmm. to an optional school, desired to go back to my neighborhood school, and had completely two different experiences um, yeah. from resources that were provided at the two schools. When I get on the school board, that's one of my fights. It wasn't about we don't need optional schools. First, every community needs kids who have access to multiple AP classes and mm-hmm. kids who can have, you know, because every community has smart kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. poverty does not equal, you know, um, lack of performance educationally. Right. right. So and there was a support. Right. There was white community. over. yes, we need more optional programs. We need more optional programs. Well, then when it started to look like a school um, and I'll name it, you know, you know, White Station is, is it was, was always my the poster school. Right. That had a, a like number of optional, like 20 some optional classes. And I went to Tresden High School and it had one AP class. Right. And I'm talking mm-hmm. AP. I'm sorry. I said optional I mean AP. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes, yes. We need more optional at Tresden until that looked like that means either your taxes got to go up. Because I need more yeah. money so this like the Tresman and Northside and you name the schools, you know, can get more AP classes. If that's not the option that we're going to go with, no pun intended, then I have to yeah. reallocate some resources. And White Station, you might not be able to have 20 AP classes, mm-hmm. but you could still have 10 because I need to reallocate. Then it mm-hmm. became don't take from my kids. Mm-hmm. And in a board meeting, I remember like, you know, yes, we need other options for other kids, but don't take from my kids. It's not fair for me. Mm-hmm. My family worked hard for my kids. And so for that to feel like if we give more students access to something that's mm-hmm. taken away from others. And, I, and that's when I start realizing, oh, we actually do have this kind of scarcity mindset mm-hmm. around good education that yeah. If everybody gets a good education, then the value of my good education is less. Right. And I, and I, I remember talking to somebody saying, you know, we're not talking about diamonds here. Like it's not rare. Right. Like everybody in this community can have access to a really good education and it benefits everybody. You know, mm-hmm. like the more the, the more we have AP doesn't devalue yours. And and so having that conversation, having the conversation around the offshore program where we were trying to change where People will fo- first complain about spending a night at the school, but also as a badge of honor. Yeah. To say I spent all night at the school. And then we and then we was like, well, let's go to a lottery system. Mm-hmm. And then people like, oh, no, I'm OK with spending night at the school mm-hmm. because lottery means you take away the advantage I have. And the advantage I have is that I have a job where where somebody in my family can spend a night at the school. Where so say more about can. what that means. Spend the night at the school. What is yes. that? So, so our optional program, because again, we have made it scarce. There are not enough seats for everyone who wants to have their child in one of these programs. So if you have 500 seats, I'm just making a number up, Mm -hmm. um, but a thousand people who want them, right? People started camping out, was not a school system policy, right? People on their own created a system where they would camp out because you have to actually be in line to get Mm -hmm. your application and it was kind of first come, first serve, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so people had gained the system really because they figured out, OK, those of us who can spend the night at the school and, you know, literally make it a campground right at the at mm-hmm. the board office um, trying to get be the first to get their choices. Right. Yeah. And it became a perception that they had to do that. The school system figured out a long time ago, most people get the school of their choice. Mm-hmm. And you get three choices and most of them get their top, one of their top three. 
But it became this ownership of this process that Mm -hmm. people start blaming the system like y'all require. So we do not require like the application Mm -hmm. open at nine o'clock and people who want to be there. And some people come like two nights before Adrian. Well, there's you got to be a different kind of family that can Mm -hmm. spend the night. And spend all day in line, you know, and people bringing coffee and donuts and, all, you know, like if you are working class and you are single parent, you know, if you don't go to work, you don't get paid. You can't do that. If so, you're third shift, exactly you right. actually you have to be shift. at work. Exactly right. Like you can't do these things. And so it really was creating another system and already of a broken system of who yeah. can get in. So we then, um, a superintendent said, why don't y'all do, we should be doing a lottery in that way. Everybody have equal, you know, like you're, you're, if you want in, you put your name in and we, we pick from this lottery and overwhelmingly the same people who had complained for years about sleeping outside, complained about the lottery. Yeah. The lottery now is not fair to them. Yeah. So now as they were advocates for, yes, our black parents and our poor students, they need the same opportunity I have. The minute we created at least tried to create a system that gives that, that was a huge pushback. Uh, mm-hmm. And among some people that I know, and I was kind of like, oh, wow, like, okay, I thought this was action care, it'd be welcomed, and it was not. And so, yes, I've had to deal with that in that specific example of people feeling like, well, how can we give more without taking from mm-hmm. me? And I'm like, well, depends on what you call taking. We can give more yeah. by putting more in the system, which means yeah. quit fighting, raising your taxes. Mm-hmm. Your property tax, especially, which is less regressive than the sales tax, right? Mm-hmm. So quit fighting property tax increase or recognize your kid doesn't need as much as these kids to get yeah. to the same outcomes that we're trying to have. Mm-hmm. That is a really powerful example. I'm going to have to think about that and maybe talk a little bit more about that. Um, but not today. <laughs> because we're not going to be here all day. So what would you say is the greatest equity challenge in politics? I mean, I really think it's that, right? So politics is still fueled by people, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this perception that money is more powerful than people um, mm-hmm. in politics. So people run, right? They spend a lot of time raising money. And who can give money mm-hmm. to politics? Right. Of people who have money because you can't even write it off. Right. So people mm-hmm. who can invest in politicians, they come across as more powerful because we haven't figured out how to make politics matter for people who don't have money because mm-hmm. it has never worked in their favor. So then they're mm-hmm. not all that inclined to just show up and vote. Right. And I've always said the minute we can get a rising of people, poor people to vote. Like mm-hmm. that we can figure out how do we help them understand why it's important to vote. Uh, you can see why they think it's not important to vote, right? Because they get people yeah, in office and then the perception of power of money, mm-hmm. you know, outweighs the perception of power of people. And so mm-hmm. because of that, then it's that kind of never ending cycle of I'm apathetic, so I don't vote. I don't vote. So the right people don't get in. Mm-hmm. The right pe- the people get in, don't do anything for me. So I'm mm-hmm. apathetic, so I don't vote, you know, and it's just mm-hmm. that cycle. And I said, if we can have an uprising, and, and this, is what, this is my next life work, right? Trying to figure out how do you really have people understand your vote really does matter? Because imagine if in a community like Memphis that's 65% Black and mm-hmm. 90% of the people showed up to vote. 
Mm. Okay, how much money somebody raised? Mm. They 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 have to change. They they'd have to change. So one of it is that right, the the money, the the perception of the power of money over the power of people on both. Mm. And so then if I'm the one with money, I can you know kind of exploit that system, right? Even yes. uh, even again, if my intentions are great, I you know, but I'm exploiting that system because I use my money to get my access, right? I use my money to yes. get influence. And because I'm at the table, I what my my influence outweighs the influence of people who are not at the table. And the right. only reason they're not at the table because they don't know that they actually own the table. Yeah. So I think that that's one of it. The other is when people get in office without understanding individually, they're nothing. It's the collective power. And so you have people on a body and you can tell they don't understand the collective power. Mm -hmm. They each have, everybody have their own resolutions. They're like, okay, what's mm -hmm. the North Star here? What are we trying to mm -hmm. accomplish? What are we trying to do? And so without having that vision of community and how community can look different because of their elected power, that means then they lack the courage because the courage comes from collective, right? Like yeah. if you by yourself, you can get picked off. If you all are you know, strong. If I could give a message, and I don't know if I'm saying too much, but I could give a message to like now the city council. Mm -hmm. I say to the women on the city council, I know we're talking about racial equity here, but to the women mm -hmm. on city council, there's seven women on city council. It takes mm -hmm. seven votes to get anything done on the city council. Mm -hmm. If we don't see a city council, if we don't see a city administration that recognize the powers in those women, because mm -hmm. if they say no, it don't go anywhere because it's yeah. seven of them. And so, and so it's... um. Uh, I'll mess up uh, uh, Alice Walker's quote about, you know, the problem of powers when people don't recognize they have it. Yeah. And so I think one of the biggest obstacles for, for equity is a power that people don't recognize they have. And so mm -hmm. things like we can't seem to get more black, you know, business to black um, organizations. Yeah. Well, actually, yes, you can. The same way you get business to white organizations. Yes, you can. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then that means, OK, what is the problem? And identifying why can't, why are, why are black businesses not bidding, and then doing mm -hmm. the work to make sure that they're bidding. So that's another mm -hmm. back to your other question about policies, right? When, yeah. when we got on the school board, there you know there was some, but there had black intentionality around recognizing the the backbone of the city are black people, and they're also yeah. the ones most disadvantaged, right? They're the ones most disregarded, but that hurts everybody. Mm -hmm. If your vast majority of your people are the ones in poverty, every damaging everybody data. Everybody hurts. Everybody Ooh. hurts. Like everybody hurts. And so until you have a plan to say, we're not going to have these huge gaps between how black students perform educationally against white students, recognizing that even those students we're doing, we're, we're mediocre at best, even with our white students. Mm -hmm. But how do we make sure that that gap is closed? How do we close yeah. the, like the income gap in this city? The last I checked, the median income for White Memphians was like 65,000 and for black men it was like 46,000. Yeah. The calculation I had, I think it's like a $27,000 difference mm -hmm. in median income. Imagine yeah. if you close that gap, the mm -hmm. benefit, I don't know how we can't realize that benefits everybody, if everybody's the making more. The entire city. Yes, yeah. the entire city. So part of it, I think, is a lack of political will. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a lack of policy. There are policies mm -hmm. about, you can go to any... And urban, you know, Brookings, everybody got the policies. You can go, yeah. you know, what makes cities smart. You can go look up all of those things. School systems, we know, we know what to do. Yeah. It's to having the political courage and will to do it and having people who quit running 
to be elected, reelected. Mm-hmm. And like I, it, I used to tell people, people call me, I voted for you. I said, thank you. But you know, you don't have to next time. Right. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> let me take this power back because you can't get me with that one, because what I'm going to do is do what I need to do, even mm-hmm. if it means not being reelected. And if we can have more people with that kind of courage to say this thing may mean I don't get reelected, but I'm going to do it because it really is about racial equity for mm-hmm. the community that needs it so badly. Oh, that is powerful. That is really powerful. And not enough people say that, think that, live in that. But yeah. it is really important. Okay. So now we're down to our final questions. There are two of them. What is your definition of equity? And how does it show up in your life and your work? I've thought about this a lot, right? And I've gone from, I bought into like people did that cute little graphic, you know, where the 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 smaller person, yes, three people looking at the fence, right, and mm-hmm. and and I was like, oh my god, look at that! That's a you know, it was the simple definition for me was giving everybody mm-hmm. what they need, mm-hmm. right, and that it's different than equality. Mm-hmm. And then I was somewhere, and someone challenged in a way that I had never thought about, like, why is no one questioning the fence? Like, yeah, why is the fence even there, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, then I started thinking about that fence, and it represents the systemic and structural injustices, right? So for me, equity is a full understanding, acknowledgement, and accounting for those systemic and structural injustices that create these disparities that we see. Yeah. And I say it like that because it's, again, it's a point that you were making so beautifully in the book about divert DEI, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, because because you can understand, but they don't mean you acknowledge. Right. You can acknowledge, but they don't mean you account for it, right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so just because you understand these things, if you are not understanding, acknowledging, and accounting for those systemic things, then you stop trying to do these kind of feeding programs and you stop trying yeah. to do homeless shelters and you stop trying to do these things that are like a Band-Aid and recognize the reason. So homelessness, as an example, I'd use equitable policy is about housing. It's yeah. not about shelters. Mm-hmm. And so for every dollar you spend on a shelter, it's a dollar you're not spending on housing, Right. And it's recognizing that affordable housing is about renting. You know, it's about home ownership. Mm -hmm. It's about neighborhoods and the complete built environment of neighborhoods. It's about property values, right? It's about ordinances and code, you know, uh, enforcement, right? It's about zoning. It's about what you say could be in one community and not another. And so when you recognize that in North Memphis, my native that the reason why North Memphis faces the struggles that it does is because of redlining, right? Yep. And and you can't acknowledge that and then act like, so now we don't need to do anything about that, that we shouldn't be holding banks to a higher standard and different mm-hmm. accountability where if I'm on the city council, developers, like what's the incentive? Because you can't require, but what's the incentive? What's the policies? How am I incentivizing it through policy? That if you want to develop in East Memphis, there needs to be something that's happening in North and South Memphis, but where we've continually to ignore, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to make hundreds of millions downtown, we need to know what what is the residual benefit to to North Memphis, right? I would say Mm -hmm. to the city council for every policy, every time you say yes to development in East Memphis or downtown and other areas, then we need those developments. I'm not downing those developments. I need East Memphis downtown to Mm -hmm. be prosperous. 
But I need North Memphis to not continue to struggle in the way that it does. If you ride right. through that community, you know there have been no intentionality around it, right? So it's the understanding, acknowledgement, and accounting for that and recognizing that equity is not about um, equality on any level. It's certainly not about an equality of resource. It is about equality of outcome, mm-hmm. but it's the equitable inputs. And so when you start, so that optional program, that's an input, right? That's a resource. That is acknowledgement that we have resourced some schools in a way completely different than we resource other schools. But we want to hold Tresvent and White Station to the same to the standard. same standard. We want their report cards to look alike when yeah. their inputs and their resources don't look anything alike. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's recognizing it is systems. It is injustice. And it's not about fairness. I mean, I, whatever that means. I, I don't know yeah. what that, I mean, because if, if, if you're feeling unfair because now I'm losing something, then mm-hmm. I can't, I don't, I, I can have a conversation with you because I need you to understand mm-hmm. why we do need to take some of this. But if you're feeling less powerful about that, that is a deep conversation that I think mm-hmm. we've been af- afraid to have. I do want to just say your book should be required reading for politicians. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if you attend it for them. And, um, a plug in my work. I want to talk to you about that, <laughs> about how we okay. make that uh, happen. But it is just really thinking about what are the equitable resources that will look different to get to the equality of outcomes. And those are opportunities. Those are tools. Those are resources. Those are things that are in the mix that determine why some have and why some do not. Yeah, I really have appreciated hearing your thoughts in this context. If listeners want to find you, because I know now that you've started your own thing, share what that is and how people can find you and connect with you. Yes, finding me is too hard. I gotta, I have to get to the level of finishing out my website. I'll be honest on that. So <laughs> I, um, I stepped away from philanthropy in June. So as of July, I've been operating the Harwig Group, which is H A R capital W-I-G-G, which is honoring my dad and my husband, uh, the combination of my names. And out of this realization that I got to the point where even through philanthropy, my goal has been, how do we help the public sector truly be effective, right? We could keep pointing at it as the problem, but they really are the opportunity. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know any community really that has gotten to this economic, you know, vitality without an aligned, well, without a supportive public sector. And I mean, supportive of whatever that mission is. And so I am now serving to help public sector from decision making, from what it means to align and be collaborative is the work that I do. Helping nonprofits also tap into that level of spirit of strategic partnerships, public private partnerships um, and leadership. But people can find you on LinkedIn. Yes. So you can find me on yes. LinkedIn under my name, Tamika Harwick. Mm-hmm. You can find me on Facebook uh, yeah. under my name. And don't look for me on IG. I got to get better on IG, but I'm there too. <laughs> I'm there too, all under my name. But yeah, you can find yes. me on LinkedIn. Message me on LinkedIn. I do respond um, to those messages. Would love to connect with, with your listeners and to you more too. So yes. I think, thank you for this. I appreciate it. Of course. So that's Tamika Hart, H-A-R-T, Wigginton. We can find you in all of those places. And if we follow you on LinkedIn, we'll see when your new website comes out. Yes. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. I appreciate it. Good. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Equitable. To connect and see the work we do to make equity actionable and to find all episodes of this podcast, 
visit standpointconsulting.com. You can also follow us on social media at Standpoint Consulting.